Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 22 in our 1 Corinthians Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, Christ is Risen, the First Fruits from the Dead, where we'll discuss 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 34. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses we're looking at today? Well, here we're going to get to the point of the entire chapter, and Paul's uh, point, and indeed Christ's point in the resurrection is our resurrection, not ultimately Christ's resurrection, although that's vital. But Christ took on a human body in the incarnation and then took on a human body again in his resurrection uh, in order to save us into a holistic human experience that includes us being in bodies forever. And so the resurrection of the body is part of our own future hope. It's part of our own salvation. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. And this, this section that we're going to walk through here kind of brings that point home. Paul has been kind of playing with the idea if, if the dead are not raised, if there is no resurrection and all that. But then triumphantly in the passage we're going to study today, he asserts Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, but then calls him first fruits. Uh, first fruits is that picture from the Old Testament of the beginning of a heart of a vast harvest, and we are that vast harvest. God intends to raise us up in Christ on the last day. As Jesus said, I will raise him up on the last day. In John 6, he says that several times. And so our own future bodily resurrection is asserted here. And along with that, a, a grand and glorious vision of the of the summing up or the, or the uniting or the bringing together of everything in the universe under the headship of God through Christ. And that's a very exciting vision, a future vision of absolute unity in which all the enemies of God have either been reconciled by repentance and faith in Christ or have been crushed and destroyed by Christ's triumphant work. So we look forward to walking through all of that. Well, let me go ahead and read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 34. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this... To your shame. Andy, verse 20 stands in stark contrast 
to the tone of verses 12 through 19 that we looked at last time. What is the significance of the term first fruits in this passage? And if there is a resurrection, how does the phrase, those who have fallen asleep, make perfect sense for mm. those who die in Christ? Yeah, it's beautiful. So many rich themes. Yes, it, uh, verses 12 through 19 are very gloomy. Um, if there is no resurrection for the dead, if there is none, if there is no res, it's so hopeless. And frankly, it feels very much to me like the book of Ecclesiastes, which I think is basically written, if there were no resurrection from the dead, then truly life would be vanity. It'd be vanity of vanities and everything would be meaningless. Mm. All the projects you work on will sink back into the dust. Everyone you ever knew will die. You will become obscure. I mean, nothing you did will actually make any consequential difference. But I think very triumphantly at the end of this chapter, uh, Paul asserts that our works or labors in the Lord are not vanity. They're not in vain because there is a resurrection. So Ecclesiastes is life without the resurrection. So also verses 12 through 19 in this chapter are similar to that. This is what, if there is no resurrection and Christ has not been raised, lots of bad consequences. But then verse 20 comes in with a triumphant uh, cry. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. It's a historical fact. It's a theological fact. It's the most important fact in the history of the universe. Christ has been raised. But he adds to it this key term, first fruits from the dead. So there's a vast, vast harvest yet to come. That's what first fruits means. In the books of Moses, when the Israelites were commanded to bring first fruits, that was just the beginning of a harvest. The implication is there's whole fields of wheat or whole, whole trees filled with fruit that have to be brought in. And so this vast harvest is yet to come of righteous people who have died in Christ, but who have not been raised yet. As Paul says in another place, they are absent from the body present with the Lord, or they're still alive or perhaps haven't even been born yet. But there's a, a vast harvest of, of the elect uh, who will come to faith in Christ or who are already have, who will be physically raised from the dead in the pattern of Christ. Made like him, like him we will rise, as Charles Wesley put it. And so this, uh, this word is so triumphant, this concept of first fruits. We are going to be part of that vast harvest of resurrection. What it means for us is we are going to spend eternity in a resurrected body which Paul will describe in detail later in this chapter. I can't wait to get to that, but a glorious, powerful, spiritual body that cannot die. It's incorruptible. We're going to spend eternity in that body, so be of good cheer and live a certain moral kind of life. That's where we're getting to today. So that's very, very exciting in the concept of first fruits. Concerning that that phrase, fallen asleep, first of all, this is a phrase that Jesus introduced. He said, Lazarus has fallen asleep and we have to go wake him up. Um, and uh, you know they, they, they thought he meant just physical sleep. Well, then he's going to be fine. He's like, no, no, Lazarus has died. So he uses that term. But for, for Jesus to, to raise Lazarus or resuscitate him, really, he didn't get a resurrection body at that point, but to bring him back to life was just as easy as shaking a slumbering man and waking him up. Mm. Uh, that's how easy it is for Jesus or for God to raise the dead. And so... It's an analogy that we are, uh, we Christians, when we die, it's like we've just fallen asleep. Uh, at the end of the world, at the last trumpet, uh, when Jesus comes, he will raise his people from the dead and it will be easy for him to do so. Uh, as it says in John chapter five, all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. We're gonna just hear his voice and come out. He will raise us up as though he were waking us up from sleep. What theological link does Paul make between Adam and Christ in verses 21 and 22? 
Right. This is the, uh, the second place that he does this. The other is in Romans chapter 5. And so we have this significant doctrine about Adam, Adam being our federal head, our representative. Uh, in Adam, we sinned and die. In Christ, we are made righteous and live. And so that that was used in Romans 5 uh, to to display and unfold the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And how can can something we trust and believe but don't really experience or feel make any difference at all in our position? And he argues there for federal headship in Adam, you may not have felt a sinner. You may not have felt that you died in Adam, but you did. That's positional language. So there he's describing the significance of justification by faith through federal headship. Federal means representative headship. Jesus represented us at the cross, just like Adam represented us at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so in Adam, we died. We were sinners. We made sinners and died. In Christ, we're made righteous and lived. That's Romans 5. Here, what he's saying is in Adam, we died. In Christ, we are all raised from the dead. So it's the same concept of federal headship. Now, let me say something very important about evolution. I, whatever you may believe, I don't think that that if you are a theistic evolutionist, that means you can't be a Christian. I don't. I don't. I think there's good arguments against theistic evolution, but the historical Adam is essential to our our doctrine. Uh, we have to believe that there was a literal historical Adam to understand Romans five and First Corinthians fifteen. What does verse 23 teach us about our future in Christ and the timing of the resurrection? Yeah, verse 23 says there's a sequence to it. First of all, uh, Christ is given preeminence. He's given given the first place. He's given the role of being first fruits because he is king of kings and lord of lords. He is the son of man. He should have preeminence in all things. So for centuries, even millennia, he is the only resurrected human. Uh, there were other humans that were resuscitated like Lazarus or like Jairus' daughter, but they weren't resurrected into bodies that can never die again. Jesus, however, stands alone and he has preeminence. And it, there's an order here. There is a, there's a turn, an order. Christ goes first as the first fruits. And then it clearly says when he comes, then those who belong to him. That clearly teaches the resurrection happens at the second coming of Christ. First Thessalonians 4, the rapture verse, teaches the same thing as well. It's at the second coming. Now, people looking at Revelation 20 and the millennium and all that, there's all kinds of confusing aspects to that. And, and I don't want to be confusing, but if all you have are Paul's writings in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, you know when the resurrection happens. It happens when he comes. It happens at the second coming. But the pur purpose here is to exalt Christ and give him preeminence mm. so that in all things he might have preeminence. Andy, as we come to verse 24, there's a number of striking phrases here. One of them is, then the end will come. Another is uh, that Jesus will deliver the kingdom to God the Father. And then it talks about him destroying all rule, authority, and power. Talk a little bit about verse 24 and what we see uh, from Paul's argument here. Well, the end of all things, the end of the history has a purpose. And, you know, he makes it very plain in Ephesians 1.10 and also here that we're moving toward a unification of all things in the universe, in heaven and on earth, all things united together gladly 
under the kingship of God, under the, the rulership of God, under God's throne. Jesus's work is to bring together all of those things and make them one. And we're going to talk about that more as we move on. But the end of, of history, the purpose of history and the, and the chronological end will come uh, at the second coming and at the resurrection. At that point, he's going to hand over, it says, um, or present the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. So that language is like demonic powers, all of his enemy powers, Satan and sin and death and destruction. He's going to destroy all of those enemies. And having defeated all of his enemies, he's going to hand over a tranquil, united, perfect, perfected kingdom to God to rule over forever. Now, on the heels of verse 24, we come, obviously, to verse 25. How does verse 25 relate to Psalm 110, verse 1, and Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13? Yeah, uh, that's quoting Psalm 110, you know, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. That's something God the Father says to God the Son. The Lord said to my Lord, um, David wrote, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Um, And so the idea is... Once Jesus died and then rose again and ascended through the heavenly realms, he sits down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, the author of Hebrews tells us. And from that position of honor, then he watches God the Father zealously go after his enemies. Now, there's one of two outcomes for his enemies. Either they are going to bow before him, every knee will bow and every tongue confess, gladly. And the kingdom of God is where... where Uh, the creatures, subjects to the kingdom, gladly submit to his kingly reign, delight in it, celebrate it, want it to happen. However, there are enemies that will never submit to the reign gladly. They will never never, uh, be delighted in the reign and they have to be uh, subdued. They have to be destroyed. They have to be crushed. And God the Father is saying, I'm going to do one of two things with these enemies, but you sit at my right hand and watch what I'm going to do. And so Mm. Almighty God, the God who created and who sustains all things, puts his omnipotence behind this holy war. And the holy war is either a a war against our indwelling sin and, and our positional sin, which is conquered by the the saving work of Christ, and we are rescued from being enemies to being sons and daughters of the living God, or the enemies are demonic and uh, also human beings who will never believe in Jesus. They are reprobate. Um, He will fight against them, and he's going to reign. He's going to uh, subjugate all of them and uh, win win over them by his power. However, he doesn't win their love. He doesn't win their affection. They'll be, I think, seething with rage for all eternity. Why does Paul call death the last enemy? And why does God wait so long to destroy this enemy? It's a very good question. And it is the penalty of sin, the wages of sin is death, that Adam was threatened before he ever sinned. And he said, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And so death entered through sin. And uh, that is the penalty. And so all sinners must die. Obviously, there later in this chapter, we'll talk about a mysterious generation that will not physically die. They will be alive at the second coming. However, um, it, it says in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed to each of us to die once and after that to face judgment. And so it's part of God's way. And so as much as he yearns to crush his bitter enemy, death, in John 11 outside Lazarus's tomb. You know, when Mary comes and says the same thing her sister Martha had said, Lord, if you had 
been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus was filled with an internal rage. The, uh, the Greek makes it plain that he is raging inside himself, but not at Mary, certainly not. He loves her tenderly, not at Martha, not at any of the unbelievers that are around there, the Jews that came down from Jerusalem to be part of the funeral, not at that. He is raging at death and he wants to destroy death. He wants to do it now, but mm. it's not God's plan. Mm. And so um, for 20 centuries, we know the blood of martyrs has been seed for the church. At least we know that. Some martyrs are going to have to die. It's part of God's plan that, that God intended uh, that those individuals be born, would live a certain number of, of days on earth, and then would give their lives for the gospel. Um, others like David Brainerd didn't die martyrs' deaths, but they died very difficult deaths, and it was part of God's plan. And so the the final enemy or the last enemy is death, and he can't remove it until the end of the world. So um, fundamentally, that's that's what this means. The last enemy or the final enemy is death. What clarification does Paul make in verse 27 about what is put under Christ's feet? Well, the clarification is God himself isn't put under Christ's feet. So, you know, that that excludes God, but everything else is going to be under him. He is king of kings and lord of lords. Probably the clearest explication of this is at the end of Ephesians chapter 1, where it says that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. So far above. So any powerful thing you can imagine, any powerful being, any powerful title, any any honorific title, any of that. Put all that at, at a uh, hierarchical level and then measure infinity above that. That's Jesus seated on his throne. Mm. Far above, infinitely above all things, God raised Christ. So he is reigning far above his enemy and his enemies and everything is put under his feet. Everything, everything, everything is under him. Before him, every knee will bow. And by by him, every tongue will swear, except God. Now, God's not under him at all. That is excluded, and Paul's very, very plain about this. And now, when it says everything's been put under him, it is clear that does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. God's the one doing it. And so that statement in, in Isaiah, which Paul quotes in Philippians 2, um, every knee uh, before him, every knee will bow by him, every tongue will swear, uh, he actually ascribes to himself in Isaiah, and then it's ascribed to Jesus, so um, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there's no competition between the Father and the Son. And all of this culminates in verse 28 as Paul describes this final state of the redemptive plan. Talk a little bit about that. How does verse 28 encapsulate what Paul is arguing for here as he reflects on the power of the resurrection. Okay, so to our listeners, I, I cannot stress highly enough how important Ephesians 1.10 and 1 Corinthians 15.28 are for my conception of where we're heading and my conception of what sin did to the beautiful universe God made and what God has done and is doing in Christ and ultimately will do in reversing the effects of sin. I've used the language of a fragmentation grenade. If you could see a fragmentation grenade um, blow up in super, super slow motion and watch this cohesive metal thing come apart at the seams and just move out in every direction, moving further and further and further away from its center, 
um, and and disintegrated. You know, I think about what an integer is. It's a unity. Disintegrated is something blown apart. Something that was intended to be together is blown apart. Well, that's what sin has done. There are so many things that were together that were blown apart by sin. Most importantly is God and man. Uh, we were blown apart. We were, our relationship with God was severed. And then Adam and Eve uh, knew that they were naked and were ashamed with one another and they were severed from one another. And then pretty soon Cain is murdering his brother Abel because his deeds were righteous and Cain's were wicked. Um, and so there's a severing there and then it gets worse and worse and it just moves and moves and moves. Meanwhile, we're told that creation is groaning as in, as, as in the pains of childbirth and, and it's in bondage to decay. Well, what is decay but disintegration? integration, right? You see some beautiful green leaf that in the fall turns a, a beautiful red color, but then it falls and it lands on the ground and rain comes and more leaves land on top of it. And you check it in about four or five months and it's this mucky, nasty brown thing. And it's, and it's disintegrated. You can't even pick up the whole leaf. It's come apart and it's, and it's falling back into the ground and it's disintegrating. Well, what happens to the corpse? You put the corpse in the ground and worms eat it or, or bacteria eats it and, and it disintegrates. It comes apart. Everything's coming apart. Well, God did not intend those things to come apart. First and foremost, the human soul from the body. That's the severing of the two literally is death. The separation of the soul from the body is what death is. Mm. And so the resurrection is the putting of the soul back in a body that can never be severed again, the resurrection body. So he's reversing all of this thing. And so all of this fragmentation moving from the center out, hurtling outward, and there's all this brokenness everywhere in society, brokenness between government and the people, between the people one from another, within families, there's all this brokenness, divorce, and and there's destruction. And then even today, uh, even today, Wes, I was at a, uh, I was at the uh, Hawk Pavilion and I saw a church member, a dear lady who loved, loved, loves the Lord. She's still alive, but she's in her last hour. She's in hospice care. Mm. And I've seen this before. I walked in and I literally did not recognize her. Mm. She looked like a living corpse almost. And I've seen it before, you know, in those hours before death. Um, and Paul will later say in 1 Corinthians 15, the body that is sown, it's sown in dishonor. There's a dishonoring to, to the mortal process, to dying. We we don't look beautiful anymore. Our hair falls out, our, our skin looks gross. I mean, just whatever. Well, imagine all of that disintegration and destruction reversed, healed, remedied, brought back together, reassembled, reconfigured, new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, resurrection bodies, perfect relationship vertically, perfect relationship horizontally, perfect relationship with God vertically, perfect relationship with each other horizontally, everything brought together under King Jesus, under Almighty God, all things together under one head. Ephesians 1.10 is teaching it, and so also 1 Corinthians 15.28. How awesome is that vision? And God, it says in Ephesians 1.9, made known to us the mystery of his will, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. Is not Paul teaching the same thing mm. here in this passage? Mm. The consistency of the word of God, it's beautiful. It really is a beautiful picture, and it's a part of Paul moving through this argument, beginning with the uh, importance of the gospel being proclaimed to this reflection on the resurrection as a motivation uh, for life in this world in a way that honors Christ, but also looking forward with great hope to what is ahead. Now, in verse 29 through 34, Paul turns again and starts to reflect some on uh, the 
issues that flow from denying the resurrection once mm-hmm. more. Verse 29 is a difficult verse as we begin this mm-hmm. uh, last section that we'll look at today. How should we understand verse 29 and how do some unwisely make too much of this verse or build a whole theology around it? Yeah, all right. So it, now if there's no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Well, simply to answer the question, I would say, I don't know. Uh, Why are they? Um, But I think here's what I want to say. It is a difficult verse. No one really truly knows well what it means. People can guess, and I'm going to make a guess. But um, I have far less certainty about my interpretation of this verse than I do other verses in this chapter. And I think that's okay. I'm I'm all right with understanding that there is a a basic distinction in the Bible between milk and meat. And milk are those things that are simplest to understand and most universally accepted by true believers. Um, Children can understand them, and they are what is essential for salvation. That's milk. Meat refers to things that are either hard to accept or hard to understand or both. That's what I would say meat is, hard to understand and or hard to accept. So there could be some things that are easy to understand but hard to accept, like predestination, reprobation, things like that. People can understand what it's teaching, but they just don't believe it. They don't accept it. But there are other passages, uh, 2 Peter uh, 3, Paul uh, says that Paul writes some things that are hard to understand. And that's one of these. It's hard to understand. We don't understand what he's talking about. All right, so let's let's talk about what it it can't mean. a false understanding here is that people are that are alive now are being baptized to benefit those who have already died. Hmm. And so that opens up a whole can of worms and a whole discussion uh, of uh, false theology that says that we can affect or benefit people who have died by things we, who are not those people, we can do on earth. All right? So... I I would say that medieval Catholicism, perhaps even present-day Catholicism, um, uh, has this doctrine of of purgatory. Many in Catholicism do have it, so I said perhaps, but they do. And they say masses for the dead to benefit them. Um, They will do other acts of piety like lighting votive candles for the dead or giving money. That's what the indulgences with the 95 Mm. Theses was all about in the the Middle Ages with uh, Martin Luther. So the idea is the living can affect those that are suffering in purgatory. Purgatory is a kind of like a hell, it's just temporary, in which you're having your sins addressed by your own suffering. But the living uh, can do things to benefit you, and baptism for the dead um, is one of the things that they argue can be done. Well, that is not what's being taught here. Uh, the Mormons also have a whole doctrine of baptism for the dead um, based on this verse. So I would say um, we can set that aside. There's nothing we can do to help the dead. Jesus, in his parable of the rich man and Lazarus, said, look, there's a huge chasm between us Abraham said, there's a huge chasm between us and you, and we can't get to you. You can't come to us. There's nothing we can do to help you. And hell is eternal, not temporary. Purgatory doesn't exist, not biblical. So let's set all that aside. Then what does it mean? Well, my first primary answer is I don't know, and I'm okay with not knowing. I'm okay to say, I don't know what this means. It's not going to change my theology at all. But if you say, no, really, I mean, give me some shot at what it could mean. All right. One interpreter that I read gave me, I think, you know, something that I could go with. And that is, it's talking about righteous, godly people who lived a certain uh, life 
and who left a beautiful testimony, the effect they have on unbelieving observers of their lives, like unsaved relatives. Imagine a godly grandmother who's on her deathbed and uh, her grandkids are coming and they're not Christians yet. And she basically says, if you ever want to see me again after I die, you need to be baptized. You need to repent of your sins and be water baptized. You need to come to Christ, and then you will see me again. And Paul's saying, look, if there is no resurrection from the dead, you're never going to see grandma again. So that whole argument would fall apart. So that's about the best I can do with that verse. Well, Paul makes further application about the effect of the resurrection in verses 30 through 32. Mm-hmm. How is there no motivation for extreme Christian suffering if all debts are paid in this life? And how does the idea that all rewards come in this life – stand opposed to what Christ teaches about rewards in Matthew 6. Right. So you're talking about rewards right here. One of the number one inducements to great suffering and even martyrdom uh, is given in the doctrine of rewards, that it is not in this life that you're going to get your rewards. You don't even want it in this life. I mean, I think it's good to, like with Epaphroditus, you know, honor men like him and recognize that he almost died for the work of Christ and, and you know, speak some words of encouragement to him and all that because we need to be kept going in that kind of a self-denying, self-sacrificing life. So the church should do that, but the real reward is God. The real reward is, you know, look, uh, if a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, uh, it's going to bear much fruit and uh, my servant will be where I am and be like me and my father will honor you. So that's that's it. Or as Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Mm. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So fundamentally, the idea is be motivated by rewards. Uh, I fought the good fight, finished the race, kept the faith. Now there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. So the idea of a martyr's crown or a suffering crown and all that is great inducement to self-denying sacrifice in this life. But if this life is all there is, Paul says we're fools. We we are we would be utterly we are above all men to be pitied if there's no resurrection from the dead. We're making a big mistake. So fundamentally, the resurrection from the dead motivates extreme service. Think Mm -hmm. about Jim Elliott, who laid down his life for the gospel, for the Huarani Indians who killed him, not not martyring him for anything. They just were afraid and didn't want the white men to come in their area, and they were killers anyway. Um, And Jim Elliott knew and the other four knew that there was a very good chance that they would die for the gospel. If there is no resurrection from the dead, what's the point? So fundamentally, the motivation here is we endanger ourselves daily because we're not afraid of death, Mm. because we believe Mm. in resurrection. And if we should die, we're going to be rewarded for all eternity. Now, Paul even gives a specific example here of fighting wild beasts in Ephesus. Mm -hmm. Um, What is he talking about there, and how does that belief – enable Paul throughout his life. We've talked before about the significance of Paul's suffering specifically. How does that enable him uh, to continue in that fight? I'm guessing that he's at least referring to something like uh, the the wild beasts are humans, I think. Jesus said, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls before pigs. If you do, they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. He's talking about people. Mm. So if you read in Acts 19, there's this this amazing riot in in Ephesus and they're shouting for 
what, two hours or something like that? Great as Artemis of the Ephesians, they're going crazy. And Paul wanted to go preach the gospel to them. And look, they're like, if you go in there, they're going to kill you. Hmm. And that's what Jesus meant by not giving dogs what is sacred. You go out there and preach the gospel and they're rabid and snarling and they want a pound of flesh, they're going to rip you to shreds. So I don't think he's directly here talking about Acts 19 because he actually didn't do anything that day. They just successfully kept him from going into the amphitheater and losing his life. But you have to imagine those same people around in the community and they were still pretty juiced up the next day or the next week or the next month. And Paul in ongoing ministry uh, would have been facing people who were pretty angry at him. Uh, I know this three times in the book of Acts, riots are started because of Paul. So he is facing aggressive human enemies to the gospel, but he did so unafraid. Why? Because of the resurrection from the dead. Now, Andy, you mentioned how this chapter really seems to almost stand uh, in contrast to the book of Ecclesiastes. And at the end of verse 32, it's almost like Paul could have been quoting from Ecclesiastes. How does the ethic, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, sum up the pagan approach to life? And why does it make perfect sense to live like that if there is no resurrection from the dead? Well, I have to say, if atheistic, materialistic evolution is true, that's how you should live. I mean, just go for pleasure. And when you feel like you really can't get much pleasure anymore, commit suicide. I, I think that's just – and some some um, atheistic types did that. Mm. You know, they just reached the point where they're like, look, there's, I don't really want anything more out of life. I'm ready to go. Mm. And they didn't believe in the afterlife. And so they thought that's it. I, I want to stop hurting. And if I dissolve my brain through death, I won't have any more pain. Um, and so that's the way they look at it. And then others are like, look, if for this life only we live, then let's just get as much joy as we can in this life. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die and we cease to exist. But if there is a resurrection from the dead, then that changes everything. If how you live your life in the body on earth now affects your eternal uh, outcome, your, your eternal experience, heaven or hell, then it matters a lot what you do in the body. And so Paul's saying, look, if there is no resurrection from the dead, if we cease existing at, at death, we should just go after pleasure. That's really the ethic. And frankly, I think we see that in our increasingly pagan culture. We see mm. people just mad for pleasure mm. and they're going after things and they don't care about the future. They don't care about their own selves. They just want to be happy and they want to have a good time. Now, most of our listeners will be familiar with the proverb, bad company ruins good morals. Mm -hmm. How does that proverb fit into Paul's warning about those who teach that there is no resurrection from the dead? And how does denying the resurrection lead to a corrupt, immoral lifestyle? Right. Well, he's talking to the church here. He's talking to Christians. And he's saying, you need to get away from people who actually think there's no resurrection from the dead. And that's all their pagan uh, philosophical neighbors. He's like, don't immerse yourself in their stuff because they're going to lead you back to the temple prostitutes. That's what they're doing. And that's what you used to do before the gospel came here. So bad company is going to corrupt your morals. You're going to go back to illicit sex and drunkenness and orgies and all that. So you're going to go after that stuff. Um, But if you believe in the resurrection of the dead, you're going to live a pure life. As Paul says very plainly uh, uh, in Acts 24, verse 16, he says, because I believe in the resurrection of the dead, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man, vertically and horizontally, because I do believe there is judgment day. So it does matter how we, uh, what we believe. If we believe in a resurrection, we're going to lead moral, godly, upright lives. But I'm telling you, I'm warning you, he's saying, stay away from immersing yourself with your pagan neighbors who think like this because they are consistently living out this this wicked 
pagan lifestyle because of what they believe mm. about eternity. So get away from them. Bad company corrupts good morals. And furthermore, he's giving a warning to the church. If any of these people, after having read this chapter, still believe there is no resurrection from the dead, they probably need to be disciplined out of the church because we can't have that corruption spreading through our church. Hmm. Andy, what final warning does Paul give in verse 34? And what final thoughts do you have for us on this passage? The final warning, he's telling them to stop sinning. And so he's going back to, I think, the sexual immorality and other things that he addressed earlier in the book. And he says, look, you've got to lead godly, moral, upright lives. I, I want you to be ashamed of your sin so that you stop doing it. Stop sinning. Hmm. Come to your senses. Sin is insane. It's irrational. Christ has been raised. There is a resurrection. Um, how you live now matters a lot for all eternity. So repent of your sins, lead godly, moral, upright lives, share the gospel with your lost neighbors, uh, live a godly life in light of the resurrection from the dead. Yeah, final thoughts would be the same thing for us in our generation. We're living in an increasingly pagan world. And so fundamentally, it comes down to the two journeys. It comes down to the internal journey of holiness and the external journey of gospel advance, both of them done in light of the resurrection from the dead. Uh, verse 58 says very plainly the ethical um, injunction from this whole chapter, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So let's be holy and let's be rich in gospel proclamation so that we can win the lost in our community. Well, this has been episode 22 in our First Corinthians Bible Study Podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode 23, entitled The Nature, Glory, and Encouragement of Our Future Resurrection, where we'll discuss 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 58. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.